Good morning. I am uh, Brad, if we haven't met. That's my name. Thanks for the good morning, Brad, back. That was really good. Uh, Today we're going to be continuing on in our study of the book of Ephesians. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, Ephesians 4, uh, 17. And before I read it, I don't have a big fancy introduction like I normally have. I normally have very fancy introductions. Uh, Except, man, what a week, you know? What a week where the world feels like it's kind of broken. Uh, Baseball games, in the trivial sense, now last 18 innings. Uh, That's kind of strange. Uh, LeBron James is no good at basketball, uh, which is also a strange thing for me personally to deal with in my own life. Uh, One of my heroes, Eugene Peterson, uh, passed away this week, and I've actually been really sad about a person I've never met, except in writing form. Uh, Also, our country is kind of breaking apart again in new ways where we're going to bomb and slander and blame one another and have all sorts of malice uh, towards each other. And all that to say is I'm just thankful for the Word of God uh, because it's so true and so powerfully uh, present for us in every part of the world where it seems like it's not quite right. And so I'm excited to read this passage and then talk about it. So uh, chapter 4, verse 17, it says this. Uh, Now this, uh, Paul is writing, Now this I say and testify to the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have learned about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may be grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's good word. To be honest, uh, verse 17 uh, feels like a speed bump in this letter. Uh, all along, uh, it's, it's been really nice. Uh, Paul talks about who God is, how he's adopted us, 
how we've been in this chosen people that he loves. He talks about all of these wonderful things. He talks about who we're supposed to be. It's really wonderful. But then it's like this jarring and shocking phrase here in verse 17. It's like when you're driving down Venice Boulevard, uh, as we all do, and there's no traffic, and the sun is shining, as it always is, and we roll down our windows... And we're listening to, you know, our favorite song, uh, Call Me Maybe, or whatever it might be. And we're we're flying down the road, and everything feels good, and life is the way it's supposed to be. And then you hit one of those potholes along the way, and your whole car uh, shakes, uh, your car becomes unaligned, your phone falls off the little navigation thing, because it doesn't matter how long we live here, we all want the navigation thing. And you're left wondering, after that happens, what happened to my really good day? Uh, Like $700, there's been this study, uh, people in Los Angeles, we spend $686 a year fixing our cars because the roads are bad. We live in quite the city. But that's what verse 17 feels like to me. Everything feels good and nice and lovely. After all, just the verses before, Paul says, let us all be built up in love, which is quite the sentiment. But then here, Paul begins talking about, hey, don't be like those people. As if Paul is now engaging in some sort of tribalism, right? Is Paul really, at this moment, calling all the people who aren't Christians... Dumb, dense, ignorant, impure. I mean, in, in verse uh, 13, it feels like, or uh, sorry, in verse uh, 20, it sounds like he's calling them all basically sex demons. Just like can't get enough. Well, everything else is encouraging, this sort of sticks out. You know, the the truth of God's love and mercy and resurrection in the first chapters kind of wooed us into this wonderful moment of worship. Like the last seven weeks, like we've been very worship-filled people. It's been wonderful. And the the paragraph before talks about live this life. It's like a motivational uh, speech that we rarely hear today. And it was good, and we liked it. And then now he says, don't walk like those people with their futile minds. Like, what's going on here? Just a quick aside. I think we should start yelling at people out the window when they cut us off. You have a futile mind! (laughs) I think that's better than what we do yell at each other. So one option is to say, okay, these verses here, Paul is just off his rocker. Like, he is a bigot. He is a racist. He's a tribalist. He's just saying, don't be like the Gentile. Don't be like Greek people. And then he describes how bad they are. Maybe that's him. Maybe he's just kind of crazy. He's been in prison for far too long, and he doesn't understand the nuance of a cosmopolitan life. You know, he's been locked up, and now it's starting to show. Or maybe he's like that grandpa or uncle or aunt. And he was just raised in a different time. 
The first century, after all, was a long time ago. People believed crazy things, like that the world was flat. They believed that, you know, you couldn't eat certain things. They didn't know about germ theory. And this, Paul, is just a product of all of those things. So we should just stop reading this letter at verse 16, which, which ends with just that beautiful sort of sentimental phrase we can all get behind. Build one another up in love. And then stop at verse 17, because it doesn't really fit our you know, modern sensibilities. Let's end with what sounds lovely. Because what he says in verse 17, it's like he's telling us how to live. Like he's saying, you have to live this way. Because if you don't live that way, you don't know anything, and you can't have a good life. And that just seems completely out of touch. Right? So, maybe we just cut Ephesians right here. uh, And do some revisionist history. Right? That's what we do, after all, with... You know, our favorite comedians or musicians or politicians or athletes, you know, like, we just pretend that Kobe finished his whole career after the last championship, and we just forget the rest. Or we imagine and we celebrate Kobe, and we forget the other things that he's done in his life. And we do that with all the favorite people that we like. We just cut out the end and say, that's when they went crazy. Except here is the problem with that option. The same power and authority and beauty and even use of language to convey something true, all of that that's found in the first three chapters is also found in this chapter and the next and the next. Like Paul doesn't suddenly begin to uh, write incoherently. Like his rhetoric sort of stops. Oh, he's crazy now. The same uh, truth that that he proclaims, that he describes in the first chapters of God's uh, becoming manifest and physical in the form of Jesus and that God's love has been so focused on you that he's raised you from a dead life to a full, abundant life. All of that is still present in these chapters. And then if Paul is really good at describing this message of who God is and what he's done, it must have some sort of translation into how we actually live. Right? If if Jesus rose us from the dead, and if he did rise from the dead, because he wants us to be full, thriving humans, then there must be something specific about how we live a full, thriving human life. If we're to say, well, Paul was really good explaining the message, but just bad at life. I mean, how good was he at the message itself, right? Can you really be really good at describing something and then not living in it and embodying it? If there is a true good way to live, shouldn't you tell other people about it? There must be some way to live a life that is, for like a bat, lack of a better word, just true. There must be some way to live a raised, resurrected life that's true. Or as uh, you know, my mentor I never met that passed away this week would say, 
There must be some way to practice resurrection. And so there's another option if we don't do the revisionist history thing. And we just say, well, sure, Paul said that. And he was, you know, in his right mind. And he wasn't an awful person. But maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means. Maybe through all the years of history and language and culture, we don't understand what he means. Maybe he isn't being rude here. We just don't understand because we bring our own personal lens to it. And it skews what Paul intends and what God intends. And I think a lot of that is true. Uh, Although there's not a lot here that's super contextual, like... I don't get to offer anything. Well, what you don't understand is that in Ephesians, in Ephesus, in this city, you know, they use these kinds of boats, and they call them futile. Like, I don't get to do anything cool like that. It's like, oh, like some magic, you know, Greek twists and turns. But I think we should try at least, what does he actually mean? So in verse 17, he says, don't be like the Gentiles, just essentially what he means by that. And this doesn't make it any easier for you, I know, but he means pagans, just people who don't know God or acknowledge him as God. Just people out there roaming the world with no God that they worship. Or if they do, they worship other gods and other things. That's what he means by Gentiles. And he says, don't be like the Gentiles, in the futility of their minds. What does he mean by that? He means that it doesn't matter how hard someone who who doesn't believe in God tries or thinks or how smart they get, their minds are not able to comprehend. Like the mind doesn't get to even work the way it's supposed to. That's what futile means. And so Paul means that, that the gospel of God, this message that he's talked about, of God for you, not against you, God bringing everyone who's far off, close and near, preaching this message of peace, that is bigger than our minds can understand. We fail to even understand a sentence or a phrase or a slogan of the goodness of God much less are we able to understand that in our hearts, in our souls, in our inward being. Outside of some sort of renewing of our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't understand the weight of glory, the weight of God himself. We can't understand the most significant parts of the human human story without the, the Spirit of God enabling us to know the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's just too much for our minds to grasp. Our mental comprehension is too small to know a love like that. Our cognitive abilities are too weak to understand or even grapple with the grace of God. And so he says, their minds are futile. Then he says, they're darkened. In their understanding. What they're able to understand about the world and what's really going on is dimmed. 
It's like a child fumbling around in the dark. Though I'm always shocked how easy it is for my children to like go from one room to the next, pitch dark, and still get right next to my bed and wake me up. But it's like us fumbling around in the dark. We can kind of know where some things are from our own memory or from the times where we saw something a little bit brighter. But we're all just banging our legs into the bed frame. We've been darkened. Gentiles, people who say there is no God and live accordingly, don't see the whole picture. They don't know the whole story. And so they're alienated from life. He uses a word that's really good. They're ignorant of the truth. They don't know. They have an unknowing of hope. And then he says, all of this because they have a hard heart. This hardness of heart. Uh, It's a phrase that gets used repeatedly in the book of Exodus. Uh, It's the second book of the Bible, it's one of the best like, stories you could read. Uh, I encourage you to do it sometime. You can even pick up one of those paraphrases. and just re- It's a great story, and we repeat it a lot, uh, all the time. But in the story of, uh, that's found in Exodus, the people of Israel are in bondage and they're in slavery. There's this guy, Moses, who's uh, actually a Jew himself, but he's raised in the palaces. He uh, kills someone and then runs around in the desert hiding. He sort of builds his life. Uh, Many years later, God calls him and tells him to go to Pharaoh and ask Pharaoh, the king, ruler, God of Egypt, if he can take these people, the Jewish people, out to the desert for worship. Like that's that's the, the calling that Moses has for his life. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh repeatedly, and Pharaoh, we find out at the end of almost every chapter in the first half of Exodus, he has a hard heart. Pharaoh gets introduced to freedom and the power of God almost every day. Every time Moses walks into his court, uh, Moses demonstrates just the otherness of God. He he demonstrates even just the, the passion and the controlling and the knowing of God. Like Moses starts with, you know, God's heard the cries of his people and he wants them free. So for Pharaoh to even come in contact with a God like that, he knew. And yet time and time again, he refused to acknowledge any other God besides himself. Any other power besides military power. Any other wealth of riches or grace outside of crops and gold that he can store in his houses. He continued to not believe. And in each time he was given the opportunity to recognize who God was, and each time he refused to do that, his heart got more and more hard. And in the end, he loses his kingdom, his reign, his life. He's exposed as just a human and not a God. So Paul says, that's, that's the way. That's why they walk in ignorance. Then he says they have become, in verse 19, callous and given to desires. That through all of this in this world that we live in, this hardness of heart, this futility of our minds, there's this callousness that takes place where we're so hardened to anything we cannot even feel. 
All that we can feel is some sort of a primal instinct. And he talks about how we've given to the desires of every sensuality greedy with impurity. I think it's describing how there's this giving up in this callousness on the body and the soul even being connected. We're just primal. That our sexual intimacy doesn't matter to anyone's personhood. We're all just organs. It's just carnal. It's just pleasure. It isn't human intimacy, as God describes, where you have two people who are naked and unashamed and committed to one another and committed to caring in the weaknesses, knowing one another, loving one another, giving of yourself to another. Instead, it's just physical intimacy. It's just bodies, not souls, not persons. Callous. And this greed for sex is the sign of the worst kind of naive compartmentalization, which says there's nothing happening on the inside, it's just what happens on the outside. It's like a person in a coma. It's just a body we're keeping going. So we might as well do whatever pleases us. Why not pursue pleasure however we can get it. It's what a philosopher Cornelius Plantinga, which is such a great name, it's what he calls the disintegrating of life. That we take a human existence and we cut it into small segments that are not connected, that are not related. It's what we do when we say, You don't have a personhood. You're not a person or an image of God to be nurtured or cared for. You're just a thing I can devour and I can use. And that's most readily seen and most visibly obvious in how we treat one another sexually and how we treat ourselves sexually. It's also very obvious in so many other arenas of life. It all goes back to this hardening of heart and this callousness. And that is the end of verse 19. That is what Paul meant. Does that help? I think the biggest question, though, or the biggest clue, or the biggest hint into what's going on in this chapter is why he's saying it and who he's saying it to. Like, what Does Paul just want to like, is he just a talking head on cable news, talking about them over there? These verses are found in the middle of a book written to the church. He says, you must not walk that way. He says in verse Uh, 22, put off your old self. Paul isn't talking to a tribe way out there or these people on the streets. He's talking to me and you. He's talking to us. 
that the very real and present danger for anyone who calls themselves the church or any fellowship of saints or any holy people is that for us, we will do that. We will forsake what we've been given and just walk how we used to. Paul isn't writing to pagans. He's writing to me. He's writing to you. He's writing to the church because we're prone to just walk it all back. We're prone to put on the old self, which we formerly walked. He's talking about how you and I live in here, in the community of Christ. How we live out there in the world as people that have been bought and purchased and adopted sons and daughters. He's writing because we're all prone to leave the power of the Holy Spirit and play dumb. As he describes in verse 30, grieving the Holy Spirit, living as if we don't even have this power to understand the grace of God, we just walk how we used to. As if there is no truth out there, as if we haven't been uh, empowered by a God who cares for us to know the truth. And so he says, you must not walk this way. Completely linked to the verse that we read last week that we all liked, walk worthy of the life you've been called to. In verse 17, he says, don't walk in the way you used to. If you want to know what it looks like to walk unworthy, read these verses. And this is the danger for all of us. And we see this all the time in our own stories. We take a life that's been handed to us in Christ and we exchange it for life in darkness. We receive the status as adopted sons and daughters, but then we live like orphans, scrounging for scraps. Meanwhile, God has given us every spiritual blessing. We're ushered into the kingdom of God in this parade that's led by the greatest king who died for us, and we leave that parade and leave that good king who laid his life down for us, and we walk and sign up for bondage, making ourselves slaves to sin. We're given a new life and a new promise that lasts for eternity from a God who says, your body, your blood, your heart, your soul, it all matters, I raise it from the dead. And we say, I want to be greedy for more pleasure. No matter who it hurts, no matter how much it hurts me. It's incredible how the church, or any church, can so quickly forsake the gospel to live in futility and darkness and become callous and apathetic and lost. So Paul very seriously says to you and me, do not walk as if you do not believe or know God. Do not enter into your life and allow this this notion that there is no God who cares for you to impact every aspect of your life. If you remember last week, we talked about walking as if it's this cadence that, uh, that we do life with. Like that, that there's this step that we take that, that the glory of God and who he is and who he's called us to impacts everything. The same is true for this phrase, that we would no longer walk as if there is no God, impacting everything we do. It's dark when you've given, been given hope 
and then you forsake it. It's futile when you've been given a new identity, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and yet you say, I don't care. And maybe you grew up in that kind of environment, where you struggled to see how the church is any different than anyone else, or any other organization, or any other corporation, where the people sang songs and they read their Bible and they gave up an hour and a half of their day or their week, yet they worshiped power and politics and they committed slander and malice and lies, they stabbed each other in the back. And for many of those churches, maybe you grew up in one that culminated in sexual abuse or at least the abuse of power. And maybe you grew up in a community that was ravaged by this callousness towards the world and those around them. Of, of, a, of a community that said, let's be like Pharaoh and harden our hearts. And that is why Paul says in such strong words, you can't do that. You must not do that. That isn't a possibility for you. It's not an option for you. And it's not just a command for the church that you grew up in or the church that you've seen on the news or, you know, your political opponents. This is an imperative for us. It's not a warning for other people out there. It's a warning for us. To put off the old self, he says, It says, put off your old self in verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Have your mind renewed by the spirit. Or the NIV says, have a new attitude in your mind. Depend on the Holy Spirit to know the truth and to live the truth. To live, he says, in the likeness of God, in the image of God, right and holy. In in almost every one of Paul's letters, he does this old self, new self thing. Uh, It's really fun. You can read them all after you read Exodus. Old self, new self. What Paul recognizes in in all of these letters that are pastoral, not like theological doctrines, but it's for people, is he understands that our personal stories will constantly lure us back. That there's this power in where we've been and what we've experienced and what we've known. It says, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he writes this, he says, the psychology of the old self can take much longer to shift than its theology. That the way that we process what's happening in our lives, the way we process suffering and struggle and hope and joy and good news and promotions, the shifting of that to be aligned with who God is and what he's done for us takes way longer than a shift in what we believe about God and what he's done. So the scriptures say, Renew your mind. 
Dedicate your mind to that kind of work. Not just some sort of intellectual understanding of of what does the Bible say, but also how do I live in a renewed heart and life? Where we pursue a change in how we process the world. Not going back to the old self, the old patterns. And it hardly happens uh, dramatically or suddenly. It happens like the changing of tides, very slowly and subtly. And I bet we have to uh, let go of some of the things that we cherish from our old selves. And something that happens as we live in this new life is we come to these points where we say, I bet I, I need to like, walk away from some of these some of these things that I hold true in Jesus because there's no other way. Something happens in your life where you suddenly don't feel safe. It feels like how you grew up. It feels like uh, a situation that happened to you when you were younger. And you say, I need to make sure I'm safe. God doesn't make me safe. Or you say, my body doesn't matter. And their bodies don't matter. Just like it didn't matter when I was in college. God calls us to something like caring for the poor or loving our neighbors, but we refuse to obey. Hardened in our hearts. God calls us to reconcile and pursue unity, but we pull away as we were taught in our families, as we were taught in our marriages. And before you know it, you're callous, dark, and isolated. So Paul says, put off the old self. And these words, put off the old self, I think are things that we read past really quickly. But it's actually a lifelong pilgrimage. A pilgrimage that takes place in counseling offices, in DNA groups, in worship gatherings, in our times praying and pleading with God as we drive to work. It happens in community. It happens in a group of people that are immersed in the gracious truth so much that they speak it to one another and they live it with one another. That, that we would be so immersed in a group of people that speak the truth of the gospel that, that we would know because people would say to us, you're actually safe and you're actually loved. That you would we'd encourage one another, put off the old self. Because you're blessed and you're known. You belong in the kingdom of God. Put off the new self, put on the new self. It isn't just a wardrobe change like Mr. Rogers. As much as that sounds good, it's actually a battle. And these next uh, six verses explain this battle. And Paul begins to use language of imperatives of what we have to do and what we can't do. And this is for us, you can read through this and see, oh, this is kind of the test to see where I am. Like, which parts of my life do I just go into the old self and which parts of my life do I say, oh, like, I can see the way forward now. This is the battle. This is the fruit, even, of a life that either says there is no God or the fruit of a life that says there is a God, I know him, Jesus came and died and rose again for me. In verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, 
Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He links falsehood with truth-telling. So to say put off the falsehood is not just say stop lying, but stop faking. Stop hiding. Stop telling lies and exaggerations. No more self-branding. But instead, live and speak the truth to your neighbor. The old self lives in a false reality and isn't honest even with itself. The new self lives a life in truth. It speaks the truth to everyone around it. The new self becomes someone who spreads the truth of God's love instead of hoarding sort of false loves and false affections for themselves. Put off falsehood. Speak the truth to one another. Because we're all members one to another. We all need one another to speak the truth in love. Uh, Just a quick word on speaking the truth in love. I think... Uh, a lot of times we say, hey, Brad, your glasses are really annoying, but I love you, man. <laughs> like, that's, I spoke the truth in love. I told him, what's up, you know? Uh, <laughs> which is cool. Some of you have done that. In love. I, I appreciate it. Especially, where's Victoria? She missed her chance to get called out. There you are. <laughs> She's one of those. No, speaking the truth in love is, as we described last week, that we would care so much about the calling that each of us has to live a life informed by who Jesus is, that we would say, not, hey, you need to change your clothes or wash your car or, you know, like, pay me back, though that's important too, like, and we'll talk about it in a second, but that we would love someone for their soul and who they are. Speaking the truth in love. And then he says, be angry and do not sin. I know for a lot of us we think, well, there is, is it, how can you be angry and not sin? To be angry is wrong. Right? Anyone believe that? No one wants to fess up. I believe that for so much of my life. That if you get angry, you're a complete sinner. Except for that one time when Jesus did it with the whip. And the tables. That was okay. Every other time to be angry is bad. Uh, I learned that in school. I learned that in my home. I learned that in Sunday school. Like, anger, bad. But here, Paul says, be angry. It's actually, there's a command. We should be angry. Why aren't you angry? Come on. That's what Paul's saying. Get some fire in your belly. The, the anger described in the Bible is this just anger. Anger that always says, that's not the way the world is supposed to be. And I am moved by these emotions that God gave me to say, that's not right and that's not okay. Anger in the Bible is always linked to justice. That we would be angry about something and then we would do something. God made us that way. When when the Bible in Genesis 1 says that we're made in the image of God, or as Paul says here, live in the likeness of Christ, he's saying, be like God. If you remember in Exodus, again, another plug for that book, uh, Moses says, who are you, God? And God says, I'm abounding in love, grace, mercy, compassion, 
angry. Why did God rescue the people out of Israel? Because he was angry at sin and slavery and bondage. Why does God promise Eve that one day a child from her will squash the serpent that deceived? Because God was angry. Why does Jesus passionately pursue holiness and care? And why does he even push back on children who are dying and people who are grieving? Why does he push back against all of that evil? Because God is angry at brokenness. Why does God command us to care for the refugee and the orphan and the oppressed? Because God says, that is not how I created the world. And I actually created each one of you to see that and say it's not okay. So that is what we should do. We should be angry like that. An anger that leads to justice. An anger that leads to truth and the caring of the world that God made. But he says, be angry but do not sin. Anger, just like everything else, gets perverted. And there's this other kind of anger that leads to judgment. It leads to us being above, not just our friends, but the entire world. An anger that says, you know, we are at the center. We are the chief person being offended. You know, that's really messed up. This is like our world. That's really messed up what happened over there. It hurts me. It's like it hurt you. You just had to read it on the news. Like these people are actually hurt. That's what it means to be angry and still sin. It's to say, oh, that happened, that really affects me. But what about the thousands of people that are hurting through that thing? Well, I'm at the center of it, not them. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. A lot of times that gets translated into, hey, if you and your wife fight, you should talk about it before you go to sleep. (laughs) You know, just a PSA that doesn't always work out. Like, I'm really angry and we have to talk about this. And then you don't go to bed for a long time. When maybe you should just sleep because you're tired. And then when you're like mentally able and not futile anymore, you can talk. That's just my... What, what he's saying here is do not let the sun go down on your anger. Is saying do something with it. Oh, that really bothers me. That's not right. That our world is broken in that way. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do something. That is what you do when you're walking in a manner worthy of the calling. If you're walking in the way of the the pagan, of the Gentile, and the futility of your mind, you say, there's nothing that can happen over there. Let's, Let's do it on another day. Then he says, let the thieves do honest work. I love that Paul assumes that in this household of God, these wonderful saints, there are thieves. It says something about the church. That in the church, Paul, a a community he hasn't even been around in a while, would assume there's people in your church that are really, like, messed up and steal from one another and steal from others. I don't want us to miss the assumption that, like, the church would actually have people that are not all nice and neat and tidy. It's pretty good news, because it means I belong. But he says to the thief, don't steal, 
but work. Do honest work with your own hands so that you can have something to give away. Don't just consume things for yourself, but be a generous, giving person. That when there's needs, you would have the financial resources to do it. And not saying, oh gosh, I wish I could help you, but I just, you know, bought all that other stuff for myself. I wish I could help you, but I'm not working to my full capacity. I'm not working so that I can be generous. And then he says, no corrupt talk. Let no one, or let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That we would build one another up, that we would do that encouragement work instead of that tearing down work. Uh, Mirella has to remind me all the time to put off my old self, which is completely critical of everything, of everyone. Uh, it's not a criticism of like, hey, you deserve to die kind of judgment. It's just a criticism of like, I don't know why you deserve to live. Uh, it's a criticism of myself. It's a criticism of others, of other organizations, of things that I participate in. I can't stop finding ways and gaps and holes. I think it's because I've also been given this gift to build people up, to like actually encourage. I think I have this, maybe you don't think so, but I think I do. This like gift to encourage the church, to encourage my friends, to encourage my family. But instead of doing that, I like build people down. He says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. There's other ways to do it besides being critical of others and tearing them down. There's also the way of lying to each other, stealing, misleading, yelling, making other people feel your pain. But he says, only speak what is good for building up. He doesn't just say, hey, when you get the chance in all your talking to one another, build each other up sometimes. He's saying only let the words that come out of your mouth build up the church. That's pretty great. That all of it, every word that we utter, would be because we, we hope and long for a great, vibrant human that we're sitting across from. Because we long to see them thrive in their full identity in Christ. Every word we say builds up towards that. And then he says, that fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those that hear. That it may give a gift to everyone who hears. That all the people, even if you're just talking to a friend in a whole group setting and you, you, and you encourage them, you build them up, you tell them the truth about who God is, you remind them of his grace, it's beneficial for everybody that gets to hear and see that. So for some of us, we need to stop talking. For others of us, we also need to, we just like, need to talk. Because there are things in our mouths 
that would build up the church, not just the person we're talking to, but everyone that would hear, and it's good. And he says that it would fit the occasion. I love that. I don't know if you guys have been to, well, some of you went to a wedding last night, right? Uh, have you ever been to a wedding where the, the best man or the best, uh, what's the best woman called? The maid of honor? <laughs> kind of a weird name. It should be best woman. We should change that. Uh, where one of those people gives up, gets, stands up to give a speech, and they say, let me tell you about my friend, Rick. He's terrible. <laughs> Love you, man. Just trying to build you up. That there's, there's an occasion for where we come to people and we confront them for, our, for their sins and we, we call them out. And then there are occasions where we don't do that. That we would be wise in when we speak and when we don't. And he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. I think it's in this string of words you might find yourself. You might find yourself saying, that's me. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. It's this run of words that sort of catches so much. It's a string of words that calls to mind the way we've actually lived, where we hope for people to be destroyed, wrath, where we talk bad about others that we collaborate with, we slander, or when all of the things that ooze out in the stressful moments of life are actually just deep-seated bitterness. He says, rather be tender-hearted and forgiving. Basically summing up this whole passage with put off the old self, put on the new self. Walk in emotional health. Face your own shadow, your own story. See the dark side of who you are and proactively take that out. And proactively live into a life of repentance and renewal and healing and revival. And he ends with forgive one another as sort of the the antidote to all this bitterness and wrath and clamor. And that's hard because we would say, but those people deserve. And then he says, as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. I just want to appeal to everyone, even if you're like... As I read in the beginning, you're like, oh, I am like one of those pagans. Like, I don't know God at all, and I don't want to walk with God. I just came here because Christ has done everything to forgive you. Receive that today. Believe in the goodness of a God who cares not just about what happens after you die, but happens cares about what happens in your life today and how you live, that God would actually encourage you to live a remarkable, abundant life. For those of you who read through this list and say, that is me, I walk as the way I used to. I'm still walking in all the same things. 
be encouraged that Christ cares about your life. He cares about who you are. He cares about your story. He cares about all the things that came before. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And we know this because Christ came, lived a human life, died for your sins and your screw-ups and your false self and your thieving and your malice and your slander, and he died for all of it with great joy because it would mean you being a son of God. To those who struggle to know a life that's free from bitterness, that's free from walking in a false identity, remember Jesus and the power of this resurrection life. At this point, we, we've, in the letter, we've kind of completed at least one sort of circle. Paul does these circles all the time. Where he starts with, hey, let me tell you about how good God is and who you are. And then he says, I want you to be encouraged to live who you are. And then he says, hey, this is how you live. But it's not a chart, like a timeline. It's actually the circle that gets looped around. Because now what you have to hear, because I just told you, live this way, a gospel-embodied life, you need to be told again, the gospel is good news. And let me tell you how wonderful Jesus is that he adopted you before the foundations of the world, designed you to give you every spiritual blessing. And he did all that it was required after we rebelled, after we said we don't want that life, he did everything that's necessary, even death on a cross, rising again so that he could raise you up with him, so that you could be his masterpiece. And all of this is grace, not a gift that's given as payment for some wonderful life you've lived. Before you did anything, and then after you did the worst of things, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My love is abounding over that. As we go into communion, let's remember that and let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. It's so good. I like it a lot. I pray for us to be put underneath it, to to have this reverence, for what you have to say to us. I pray for us to be built up into a a body that speaks truth to one another, that lives in truth, that encourages one another to put off our false selves, but live in our new identity. But more than anything right now, Jesus, I pray as we reflect, as we take communion, break our hardened hearts, Empower our futile minds. Give us boldness to go to places in our stories that we refuse to go. Give us eyes to see, hearts to hear. We want to be shaped by you. We want our lives to be completely formed by your grace. Amen.